Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna be learning a lot about healthy meals, healthy meals delivered to you. We're gonna learn about someone that is going to tell us about the early days, about building, about fundraising, scaling, and all the above. So I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Mike Weisrag. Welcome to the show. Hey Alejandro, thanks for having me on the show. Excited to share the story. So originally born and raised in Arizona. So tell us about life growing up there. Yeah, so uh, born and raised on a ranch in southern Arizona, uh, about 15 miles north of the Mexican border. Um, grew up in a ranching family and a, a restaurant family. So my parents bought our first restaurant when I was a month old. I started working in that restaurant when I was eight. Um, I begged my parents to let me work. Uh, that was... Ter- Hindsight was a huge mistake because once they, they realized they had cheap labor uh, in there, they, they, they took full advantage of it. But uh, yeah, I grew up working uh, all the way, put my, you know, uh, it was my spending cash through college, worked all the way till, till I left uh, Arizona um, after college. Very cool. Very cool. And what kind of restaurant was that that they had? It's a steak restaurant. So we have a cattle ranch. So we, I, was, I was like to say we were doing farm to table before farm to table was cool. Very cool. Very cool. And, and you, you also, so you were, you were able to see that and were there like any, like, was that like at the time where you maybe told yourself, I want to be an entrepreneur as well in the future or anything from that? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I grew up um, in a very entrepreneurial family. My dad was a, a Marine Corps aviator and he, he left the Marines uh, because he'd, during his career, he'd started doing real estate investment and stuff. Uh, and he'd actually built this whole entrepreneurial base, uh, and retired, left the service uh, two years before his twenty-year uh, retirement because he he become such a good entrepreneur. Um, so I, I grew up in a family where kind of entrepreneur was was the job. So you know, as you watch your watch my parents, that was kind of the job. Uh, but funny enough, I actually I went through college, I went through um, high school, dreaming and having this fascination that I wanted to be an investment banker. Uh, you know, I wasn't fully sure what an investment banker was, but I was always fascinated by business. And so that was really my passion going out of, out of college was I wanted to be an investment banker. Very interesting. And that's actually why you decided to go and, and study finance. 
Yeah, so I studied finance um, at the University of Arizona, which is a, a great school, but is not the uh, number one target for investment banks. So um, after school and, and combination that I graduated school in, uh, in 2002, which was just after the bubble burst and, and, and investment banks were down, still downsizing, not hiring. Um, so I, I worked for an entire, I worked for a year doing, or uh, two years doing mortgage, uh, mortgage investment securities and, and hustled every single day to find a job in investment banking and actually got one interview, um, with an invest, with a, a guy at investment bank. It was kind of a friendly interview. He just did it to, to be nice. And I emailed him every single day, um, for a year, um, maybe not every single day, but at least at minimum once a week. He finally, after a year, said, there's a job opening in New York. Um, I've got you an interview. Don't email me ever again. <laughs> uh, and uh, I said, thank you. I went, flew out, uh, landed the job, and, and, and got into investment banking that way. So I, I, I really, that was an example of uh, persistence paying off. That's amazing. And obviously, New York City. I mean, for you, you know, coming here to New York, you were probably like uh, super impressed. Yeah, it was my, it, I took my interview was the first time I'd ever been to New York. Um, I got the job. They said you had to start in two weeks. Um, so it was, it was an experience. Those, those of you who've, who've lived in New York know that uh, to anyone, your first month in New York is terrifying. But to a, a country kid, it was, uh, it was a unique experience and, and one that I cherish. And um, I, I look back and, and I, I was lucky I made it all the way through. Of course. And, and I guess, you know, one of the things that I see, you know, is, is one of the patterns is that some of the most successful founders, you know, they have like this interesting background of either consulting or investment banking. But I guess like here, for example, in your case, like what did you really learn? What, why was it so useful for you, that investment banking background to, for example, like tackle your, your entrepreneurial you know, journey later on? Well, I think what both investment banking and consulting does is it gets you into the weeds uh, from a financial point of view on a lot of different kinds of businesses. Um, so you're able to learn about what are the levers, what are the dials, what are the things that, that happen. Uh, and then I think when you, when you get close proximity to the management team and hear conversations and hear pitches, uh, it, it makes you have a better practical understanding of you know, what it is that makes businesses kind of move and you know generally i think no matter what the business is you know you can all you know, people say selling widgets is they kind of come down to some core principles but you really get that day in day out experience i think the other thing that investment banks do and 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 consulting firms do is it, it really is like boot camp for business the hours are horrible uh it's stressful it's long um so it, it crunches a lot a lot of information uh into a tight time frame. So, you, you know, what you can learn in two years on, on either one of those is, is pretty amazing. Uh, and I think that's why you see so many, so many, um, you know, successful people come out of those, those different fields, especially early in their career, because it, it, it teaches a discipline, a work ethic, all those things matter as you go into to start a company. And especially, for example, on the companies that you saw that, that were performing very well, were there like certain traits or, or perhaps like a pattern that, that you would see like repeating over and over again? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I, you know the the general thing was it was uh, I always saw in businesses that did great were were passionate um, founder led organizations um, and people that really believed in their convictions. Uh, you know, I think Warren Buffett has a great saying that the market uh, in a short term is a voting machine and a long term is a weighing machine. Um, and what you really see is is these passionate um, founders who 
who made who knew what their their direction was and didn't let the market waver their beliefs. And I think you know, one of the greatest examples when I was there was uh, Netflix um, and Reed Hastings. Netflix was very very successful, pushing off a lot of cash um, with their with their red uh, envelope that showed up in that DVD rental business. And and Reed Hastings was adamant um, that the future was digital. Um, and the market reacted horribly. I mean, the stock traded down. I mean, it, people were calling for him to be fired, all these different things. Uh, and he rode that out and he rode that out for, for two, two years at a minimum. Um, and, and everyone now hindsight could look back and say, oh God, that was so obvious. Every, how did, and, and at the time it wasn't obvious, you know, and at the time, uh, and I think that's what I saw in great, great businesses, uh, whether it was Google, who we were on the book of and, and those things is, it's founders that were really passionate about that mission and that belief of what they were doing. Um, and that allowed them to write out kind of the hard times where the market maybe wasn't aligned with them. Got it. And then after this, uh, so you did this for a little bit, and then you went into real estate. So so what got you to make the move? Yeah, so, you know, I, I did two years um, doing investment banking. Um, and, and one of the things I realized is, is, is you know, I didn't. Re- I realized how much I hated working for corporations. <laughs> so I said it was a slow, slow slog. I loved the people I was working with. I just felt that uh, you know I wasn't a corporate person. So um, my family's back in Arizona. My dad was really looking for me um, to come back and help. Um, they had, at that point had kind of a conglomerate of a bunch of small businesses, gas stations, hotels, restaurants, and real estate development. Um, so I went back there, worked with them. Um, Aligning things. Uh, after two years working directly with my dad, I realized that the only thing harder than working in corporate America was working for a family right. business. Um, but we had a good we had a good divide, and 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 I started doing more real estate development, and I started kind of setting out and doing some of my own uh, small businesses, and I did my own restaurant that I partnered with my parents, but it was it was my lead on that restaurant. We did yeah. some things there, um, and really got kind of that was me getting my own uh, entrepreneurial chops going, um, and and that was a lot of fun. And I guess the um, doing your own restaurant. I mean, I think that this was the 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 immediate thing that happened right before you know launching. You know, which is now your your company. So, uh, can you walk us through? You know, perhaps like what were you seeing while you were in the restaurant? You know, like how did this you know idea or or frustration incubate? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. Well, so um, we'd done some really successful kind of real estate deals. This was two thousand six, two thousand seven. Um, and we kind of came off and, and these were with me and my dad did some successful deals, made a good amount of money. And so I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a restaurant. And, and this was this was 2007. We opened the restaurant um, in 2008. Um, and uh, so we so basically I opened the doors into one of the worst economies, the that at least in my generation and, and since I was born seen. So. Uh, so quickly, and, you know, I'd come off all these successes. So, you know, it was kind of like anything I do. I thought, you know, I thought I had the Midas touch. Um, and the restaurant was floundering. It was having a hard time. Um, and I was now working. I was, I was working doing real estate during the day. I was working in the restaurant. I was at the point bartending, doing anything that took to get that going. Um, I was finding that after kind of being, um, in New York and, and eating out and eating at the restaurant. I wasn't in the shape I wanted to be in. Uh, so I had a good family friend who said, Hey, you need to start eating better. You're, you know, you're not, you're not, he, he's an ER doctor by training. Uh, but about 15 years ago, he got passionate in what he calls anti-aging, which is using food as kind of medicine. Um, and he said, you need to start eating better. And so I said, okay, well, I got this restaurant and you just tell me what I should be eating. I'm going to have the chefs kind of 
just make food for me to go. I was at the restaurant every day. So fast forward 60 days in the best shape of my life. Um, I'm feeling great and not counting calories, carbs, you know, just literally having my own kind of, I was in a ability to have my own personal chef and nutritionist. So people started asking me to do it for them. Um, I got a restaurant that's not doing great. Um, so I said, okay, well, I could turn this into kind of a side business, a side hustle and start uh, doing this for other people and making some, some money. So that was really, you know, it was kind of the combination of, of having one business that was kind of, you know, for lack of better words, failing and, and needing to get creative and innovative uh, and having a solution that, that worked for me and, and kind of there was this natural people coming to it. So, um, so started doing that and that just grew insanely fast. So let's say, let's talk about, you know, like the, you know, you thinking about, okay, you know, this is, this is something that maybe has legs, you know, I'm going to start, you know, perhaps thinking about assembling the team or maybe like incorporating or really taking this a little bit more seriously. So, so let's talk about that a little bit, Mike. Yeah. So it started growing and started growing so fast that pretty, it was pretty quick and probably three, four months. It was, uh, it, it was outscaling the, the restaurant. We had no more capacity there. So we had to move it into a separate facility. Uh, we <clears throat> decided that we were going to do a separate facility in, in Phoenix, Arizona, a bigger, bigger facility dedicated just for this kind of product project. Um, and about six months into that, I, I came to the realization that I had to choose. Uh, the restaurant was kind of floundering. And, and so I had to, I made the decision that I was going all in on this and I shut the restaurant down um, and, and really leaned into this. And I kind of, you know, for lack of better uh, words, I burned all my bridges behind me and kind of said, okay, this is it. So um, brought in a co-founder earlier, a little earlier than that, who, who uh, was that ER doctor that I was talking about, his, his son, who's a, an amazing guy, Carter Comstock, who's super passionate about health and wellness, um, you know, had, so he kind of came in and, and, and we built this together and, and moved into uh, this facility in Phoenix. And, and we were working 20 hour days, uh, literally getting up at four in the morning and then usually leaving there. Uh, one of us would leave at 11 or 12 as we were the ones who locked it up uh, yeah. and built a, t a small team and just kept building, building, building from there. Um, and that was, we moved into that facility in, I'd say 2000, I think 2013, 2014, um, and, and really worked, you know, just to get that thing up and running. And, you know, like you were mentioning that you had, <clears throat> you were at this point in time where you had the restaurant and you also had this project <clears throat> that seemed like it was picking up, but perhaps there was one, you know, when you made that decision, because it's a really big decision. There was perhaps one key metric or one key validator that really told you, I really should go with this project and shut the restaurant down. What was that? Yeah, it was just the natural growth. The business was growing, you know, 30, 40% a month uh, with very little to no marketing spend. Um, it, 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 you know, customers were extremely happy. The reorder rates were, were insane. Uh, the amount of revenue we were doing per person. So I was just looking at it from kind of, a unit economic standpoint compared to the restaurant. Um, and it was clear that this had tremendous legs on it. And, you know, even if, if, if the restaurant turned around and was highly successful, uh, the, the maximum cap I was going to ever get out of that restaurant was going to be, you know, pale in comparison to what we could do out of this business. So, you know, at that stage, it was just where, you know, the, the one, you know, we, people often in, in a startup think about how capital raising capital, really the finite resources time energy and focus, right? So in any startup, I always tell, you know, founders is focus, 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 right? Because it's all about how much, how much energy, passion, effort can you put into one thing? 
so it was dilutive. If you're running two things, it was dilutive. And that was really where I said, okay, this has got to be all in. Um, because if I put 100% of my effort on this, I think it could be much bigger. And obviously, super nice growth, as you were discussing. I mean, this, this, this was going in the right direction. And the second most immediate, you know, like important decision was who you were going to share this journey with. Because the, uh, the co-founder that you choose, is, it can make it or break it. So you were used to seeing teams from the investment banking days, you know, and, and really seeing those different patterns on perhaps what made them work or what didn't make them work. And I guess that for you, this decision was a really big one. So what were you really looking for and what did you see in Carter that really got you guys to click? Yeah, so I, I mean, uh, and you nailed it. I think if, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, um, it is very hard to go out alone just because there are a lot of dark days in, in startups. And, and I don't care what startup it is. It's most everyone has, has, you know, there's a lot of good days, but there's a lot of dark days. So <clears throat> having a founder, having someone with you who's, who's sharing that journey, both the ups and the downs is, is something, you know, no, your sibling, your, your, your family, your significant other, they won't full, they'll be supportive. They'll be all those things, but they won't be able to understand to the degree a founder will understand the highs and lows. Um, so really for Carter and I, I think the thing that, that clicked is we both believed in what this business could become. We both believed that uh, we had an ability to change the world. We both believed that there was uh, a fundamental shift we could make in food that we were excited about. Uh, and then we were both willing to put everything we had into it. Um, and I mean, from, you know, credit cards to, 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 you know, to pulling all of our 401ks down uh, and, and, and to like when we moved to Phoenix, uh, we shared a, 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 a cheap apartment. Um, and when we launched, we literally had no money. So we, we ate beans and, and, and eggs for the first two months until we started up that facility. And then we're able to eat our own food. Uh, but it was that level of commitment. I think that's when I look at, at, at entrepreneurs is, is really you want to get someone who's, who's all in at, with you and who's just fully committed to, to making this work. Uh, because in the early of most every startup, uh, outsiders looking are, are saying, this is nuts. This is like, there's, this is, you know, very few startups in the early days can people look and say, wow, this is going to be a huge multi-billion dollar, multi you know, hundreds of millions, whatever that number is, uh, business. Most, most startups don't look that way, whether it was Amazon, Uber, like they just look like, wow, this is, this is a, a crazy idea. Um, so it's, it's getting that, that person who's crazy enough with you, who's going to take that journey with you. Oh, for sure. For sure. So then, uh, Mike, what ended up being the business model here for Freshly? Yeah. So we, it's interesting because we, we, we tried a lot as we kind of fell into different areas. So we were, we were originally doing more of kind of like a, a DoorDash model where we were delivering direct, um, that we saw as being very challenging from a unique economic standpoint. Uh, we did a bit of a kind of a Muntry model, which later, you know, Muntry went out of business. And it was interesting because we were like, wow, we don't know how they're going to figure this out because we like we weren't able to figure it out um, with with running your own logistics. Um, and then we we kind of started saying, OK, well, what if we ship food directly with FedEx or uh, FedEx was our first partner? Um, and what if we then just where that would broaden how far we could reach? Um, and then what if we just made it really easy for the customer? Because one of the big challenges for our customers, they would forget to order. So we said, well, let's set up as a subscription, but an easy cancel subscription. So you never felt like you were locked into something, but we always made sure that you were getting food because our customers kind of depended on us. Um, and then similar to, to, to what I was benefiting from is, is you know, at the, at the time when we started, the, the craze was around these meal kits and cooking food. And this was kind of, and our thing was like, wow, like we, we don't like cooking. Like, 
we want someone else to do the cooking. We want to just be able to heat up the food. Um, we want it to be convenient, healthy, and most importantly, we want it to be really craveable, right? We want a dish that that we're excited to eat every day. Um, and so, so that was really the model is like fully prepared meals shipped to your house uh, with a subscription because our customers were really relying on us for kind of the blocking and taxing, uh, but, but zero commitment. So you can always pause, skip a week, cancel if you wanted to. Uh, and that's, that's, that was really the model that we pivoted into in 2015. And that was, that kind of those little tweaks were really the thing that all of a sudden just took the company off uh, at just an insane accelerated rate, growth rate. Very cool. And what were some of the biggest challenges? Because, I mean, you were you were pointing to them from a logistics perspective, also the fact that we're talking about food. I mean, what were some of the biggest challenges here? Yeah, so we were doing something in food that had really never been done before, which we were doing fresh prepared meals shipped directly to your house um, and shipped overnight so that you got, uh, you know, basically a week's worth of fresh food in your house that all you could do is heat up. Um, and, and that's never been really done in food at any level or scale. It's been done very, very locally, but never done kind of at scale. Um, and traditionally, if you look at your CPGs, they use kind of preservatives, they use frozen food, uh, because they, they, that's how they manage kind of the supply chain. So <clears throat> as you said, we were really reinventing, uh, the wheel here. And, and so that we, we were reinventing the, the facilities and, and how we did manufacturing, uh, we were reinventing logistics and working with partners and understanding that uh, supply chain. So, so what what food and, and areas we were buying food from, uh, packaging, customer acquisition, uh, you know, retention. So it was it was it was figuring a lot of things out as you go. I always like to say that you know, Freshly has has uh, we started with um, the Kitty Hawk plane that that the you know. Uh, the Wright brothers flew, and while it was in the air, we built the seven forty seven. Um, and we did it all while it was flying. Um, and it, it is not the smartest way, you know, ultimately right. you want to build the 747 on the ground, but that's really how we built it is while this thing was in the, in motion, we just got smarter. Um, and really more importantly, we, we just continuously hired smarter and smarter people who knew, who knew, who knew more and more, um, to, you know, very quickly, Carter and I, we always say that the best thing we did was make ourselves the dumbest ones in the organization. Um, and, and then we always joke that we're lucky we, we started the company because we never would have been hired into the company. That's very interesting. And why don't we just say, uh, go into that a little bit a little bit deeper. So when when we're thinking about the team, so in this case, you know, you had that experience of, of looking at teams from the investment banking days. Now you were uh, with Carter. Uh, and then, you know, what was, what was really the process of kind of like taking like a 30,000 foot view and, and then also looking ahead and, and thinking about like what you guys needed to execute on and, and the strategic roadmap, how did you guys think about that team uh, that you guys needed to surround yourselves with? And what were some of those immediate hires that you decided to really, you know, like bring on board? Yeah, so I think, you know, this is probably one of the things that's over that's overlooked the most in in startups is the success of, of startups. You know, it's, it's there's so much weight and so much talk going into, you know, funding and fund round, you know, raises, but it's really the first person, the first people you're selling is, is great employees. And what you're trying to do is just like in a great investor is you're trying to sell someone who, who is a dream, who, who really by all collective measures should not take that position with you. Uh, and most of the time you're trying to sell them on taking a haircut from what they're currently making 
uh, and to work longer hours. Uh, so, so in the early days, it was, it was, it was, you know, as we look, it was, it was hiring what we call generalists. So just, you know, just people who came in and were willing to just do anything that needed to be done whenever it needed to be done. Uh, and we found our, our, our first one was, uh, was, you know, we had some great people, but Garrett, uh, who's, who's still with us, our chef, Chris, who's still with us. Um, uh, <clears throat> just, just an entire team of, of people who were just willing to do whatever it took. Um, and that was, you know, rebuilding computers, driving trucks, whatever it was, um, the, the team, uh, just, you just built that team. Now, as you start growing and scaling, what you start seeing is gaps and, and specifically gaps in knowledge. Cause you got these generalists and you have founders, uh, and, and you start seeing like, okay, where can we go hire the best and breed, uh, you know, the, the, the top talent who could really jump us to the next level. And that was really on manufacturing and operations. Uh, and, and. And again, we went out, we, you know, we did searches on, on LinkedIn. We found people that were doing similar companies and went out and searched. Uh, and that first person we hired, uh, Vanessa Lindsay, was, was someone I pitched originally as a consultant. And I pitched her for three months solid about joining um, Freshly. And, and you know, she was kind of the first person who came in with just a tremendous amount of knowledge on doing food at scale uh, to that next level and, and really helped us just just step function the business to the next level as we thought about, um, you know, growth and elevation and, and her ability to bring in and attract great talent kind of took us to that next level. Very cool. Very cool. And, and you guys started this in Arizona and eventually you moved to New York. So why did you decide to move to New York? Yeah, so we moved. So we took our first series of funding from Highland Capital Partners um, and uh, Bob Davis, uh, who's you know been on the board of Harry's, um, Handy, Newtonomy, a bunch of you know very successful companies. And he said, "Look, if if you're in Phoenix, you know I'm still going to invest in you. But if you're in Phoenix, there's not a lot that I can do for you. Um, but if you're in New York, I can open up the world for you. I have so many connections and so many different uh, people I know." Um, my network's just smaller in, in Phoenix. Uh, and, and Carter and I both knew that if we wanted to build and scale this business to where we wanted to take it, um, that we needed to be, uh, we needed to be in, um, either San Francisco or, or New York. And so that kind of made our decision easy. Um, I lived in New York at this point, so I did invest in bacon in New York. Um, Carter hadn't visited New York since he was 10 years old. So that was a bigger jump for him. Um, but we kept our operations in Phoenix. We still have our operations. Actually, we still have a secondary headquarters now that we've opened in Phoenix. Um, but we just moved our, our headquarters out here to New York in 2015. Uh, and, you know, looking back is, is probably one of the best moves we made uh, just as we look to scale marketing and, and, and our tech team out here. Uh, just the, the, the level of talent out here doing kind of e-commerce and things like that was, was just immense. And I'm sure that there's a lot of listeners now that that are thinking, oh man, I'm 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 like outside of a of a hub, you know, like New York or or the Valley or or you know whatever that is. <clears throat> I guess what kind of um, advice or or perhaps you know as they are thinking about whether to make the move or not, you know, how would you suggest them to to really approach you know this this big decision? Well, so, you know, I, I, there's, there's no one answer, first of all. So, so, you know, there's plenty of major big companies, very successful companies that have grown up in all sorts of different places. Um, additionally, there's kind of your major hubs, and then there's now these kind of secondary hubs that are, that depending on what you're doing, are becoming really, really exciting, whether that's Austin, Salt Lake, Seattle, um, to degree Chicago, 
Um, so, so I think there's, there's the ability to, to look at those, but the big thing for us, and I think the big thing is startups are hard startups. And what you're trying to do is always stack the odds on your side, um, and proximity to talent and proximity to people who have done and are doing great things in your industry just makes the job that much easier. Now, can you recruit great people to, to live in your town? Yes, you can. Uh, and, and that's, but it's just, it's just a challenge. So proximity is always king and, and, and different depending on the industry that you're part of, uh, that hub may be in a different location, right? So, uh, <clears throat> for us is, is we, we attracted great talent in Phoenix and it was, it was, it was great. We, we definitely challenged to get the, the talent that we wanted, uh, from a tech and marketing standpoint, just cause there weren't as many industries doing that in Phoenix. When we came to New York, it's kind of that was the blood. So it's not only the it's not only the people that you can attract, but it's the conversations, the proximity. It's sitting down with other founders, uh, and 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 if you're in New York or San Francisco, it's so easy to just build your network of people doing similar things. Uh, and, and what you realize is, as a founder, is a lot of the things you're doing are are unique, but but most of them are not unique. Most of them are you know are, are people issues, process issues. Uh, you know, scaling issues, uh, fundraising issues. Those are all things that it helps to have uh, proximity to other founders uh, and building that network is, is really important. Absolutely, absolutely. In this case, uh, Mike, for you guys, it took a little bit of time to to raise money. And, you know, I think that the that those days probably, you know, like some of them were super scary uh, because, you know, like it's like walking through a thin line. You don't have a lot of room to, to make mistakes. So, uh, Tell us about one of those moments where you thought that, you know, perhaps there was not going to be a tomorrow for Freshly. Oh, there were so many in the early days. I think, I mean, to, to give, to give, we, we ran this business. I think this is a very different kind of, and it's been beneficial, but we ran this business on a collective for two years, total fundraising. We, we raised, uh, we raised just over $250,000. So if you think about like the burn and stuff, so two years, um, and Carter and I didn't pay ourselves for two years. We didn't have, so it, it was not only our, our personally were we running on flames, but um, you know, I still, one of the most vivid moments was was Carter and I sitting in a room and we had, we were not, this wasn't, we had one month, we had three months of burn. We had 48 hours uh, to make payroll. And 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 we had two investors that were hemming and hawing on putting money in. Um, and if if they didn't put the money in, we were, we were gonna have a challenge making payroll. Um, and you know, so a lot of those moments is, is, is luck, right? So it's, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know how much skills involved in that. I, I, you know, there's an old Gary players quote that, uh, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. So maybe there's some of that, but, um, you know, there's, there's a lot, that's just one of the moments. There's so many of those moments where, where we could have gone left or right, or, or someone could have gone left or right. I mean, we had one of our original vendors, um, a machine that we needed to, to give us uh, all natural shelf life preserve. So you, it's basically a, it's a, it's a machine that is a packaging machine, which allows you to keep the food for longer, but not add any preservatives. Uh, <clears throat> it was a $50,000 machine. There was no way we could afford that machine. However, it was crucial for us to do that, to get that shelf life uh, for, for FedEx. And this vendor agreed to finance it uh, for us uh, for zero percent interest uh, with ten percent down, just because he met us and he believed in us, and he went to bat for us. Um, and and you know, had someone had that guy not done that, um, you know, it's it's difficult to say whether we would have been here. So wow. a lot of those moments that we just we had people bet on us, we had people invest in us that get us through the hurdles. 
And, you know, it's it's super interesting. And, you know, like you said, you know, like I think that there's like moments, you know, of this nature, like left and right, especially during the during the early days, you know, with 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 doing a hyper growth business. Uh, but I guess that it's also a mental challenge, you know, and, and, and being able to quiet those voices, you know, the white apes and the questioning yourself and all of that stuff, you know, during those really, really challenging times. So how do you do that? So there's a few things. So one, and this is why I always tell people is like, uh, you, you want to do something you really believe in. You want to do something that you're passionate about, that you that that you're excited to build, that you feel that is going to leave the world in a better place, and whatever that may be, because that passion, that excitement, will help you and your team kind of drive through the tough times. I think first of all, that's a mental outlook. You know, is is you know, it's it's if you're a hiker, it's getting to the top of the mountain, and that's the goal, and that goal helps everyone through the tough times and, and says so. That mission and that 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 purpose helps. A lot. And then I think the other thing I always tell founders is, is do not underemphasize that you are a machine and that properly maintaining that machine is very important. So lots of sleep, um, eating right, getting exercise. You got to take, you know, there's a, you know, when you get on the plane, they always say, uh, put your oxygen mask on before you put your kids on. You got to take care of yourself first. Um, and I think that gets underestimated is how important it is because that gives you the stamina to have handle the good and the bad days, right? Um, uh, and then I think, you, 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 you know, that's why the last thing is, is have someone on the journey with you, um, because a lot of times you just need to sit in the room with someone and say, OK, we're on this together. Right. So, you know, we're going to figure this out together. Uh, what I always saw with me and my founder, my founder is that, you know, we would take turns being the, the, being the strength and being the, uh, the person who said, hey, we're going to get it's not that bad. We're going to get through it. We're going to figure our way out. Um, and, and I would say never did we have a moment where we were both down. Right. We, we always, always one fed off the other the opposite way and said, hey, we're going to figure out how to get through this. Um, but it's it's optimism. It's, you know, part of being a founder is being uh, a little overly optimistic, a little insane, um, because that gets you that gets you through the days. Yeah, absolutely. And then now, you know, like just like extending a little bit more on the on the fundraising side, uh, how much capital have you guys uh, raised today? So now we've raised uh, 110 million total. Uh, our last round was led by Nestle, and that was a that was a 70 million dollar round that we completed uh, a little over two years ago. Um, but yeah, it's 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 been a, a big difference in in not raising any you know bare 250 thousand our first two years, and then now raising 110 in our last uh, four and a half years, five years. That's uh, that's definitely a lot of a lot of money. Uh, but I guess uh, here, I mean, you've you've uh, been able to onboard great people. I mean, you have uh, you were talking about Bob Davis from Highland, Inside. Uh, you have White Star. You even have the the guy that founded Seamless. So I mean, really, really great people. Uh, so I guess my question here is, what have you learned about fundraising, Mike? I have learned that fundraising is hard. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Uh, fundraising is hard. It is it is a journey. Um, it's one that. <clears throat> You have to enjoy the journey and the process uh, because it's hard. Um, but I, I've also realized, and I advise people all the time on this, is that um, your investors are partners. They are they are going to be your partners um, for the long haul. They are going to be in that room. They're going to help you solve things. Um, you need to make sure that you go out and find great investors. Uh, and you know, I think so many times people get stuck on the firm, but it's really the partner, the board member, who's going to join that 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 journey. And, and, and there's different investors at different times that you need, right? So your series C, your series A, 
that's a very hands-on investor. That's someone who's really helping you solve kind of the blocking and tackling. Series B, C, yeah, it's really investors who who understand kind of the evolution of a business and, and are, are now extending their network and, and really helping kind of in that way. And, and as you think about, uh, you know, helping build the business and, and those structures. But it, it's great people. And I, we've been, you know, our investors have been amazing. And the same journey we've, you know, we've gone from when we were 15, 2015, we were 15 employees. Uh, we're now over 1,500 employees. Um, so it, it's all, it's all, you know, all all great businesses are built by great people, um, and and it's it's attracting the best people to help build this business. And for us, it's it's been great because we truly do have a mission and a belief that we can fundamentally change food by just making it easy for people to eat amazing healthy food uh, by making it craveable and convenient. And, and that's been something that no matter who's joined, whether it's an employee or an investor, everyone has believed in this mission. Uh, and it's had us all unified around where we're going and why we're going there. And I think that that helps a lot when you're fundraising uh, and you're bringing on. And I think, you know, overly, I think in this day and age is overly important. And you're seeing some whiplash on that is, is that valuation. Oh, well, what was your valuation? Which is really less significant um, in, in, in the journey of, of, of of building a company. And, and you can see that obviously, and we're seeing that with WeWork, that can work against you at, at points as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent agree. Uh, one of the things that I thought he was saying uh, super interesting here is that you guys literally launched during like the same time as uh, some of the other, uh, you know, companies that were also doing deliveries to, to, to the homes. Right. Uh, and, you know, we've seen, some of them, you know, panning out not so well. Uh, other ones that, you know, had some acquisitions, but definitely not the, not the 10x that maybe the um, the investors were looking for. Uh, but in this case, you know, something that I that I thought it was super interesting is that the way that you guys have positioned the business is in a way in which really addresses significant problems that the consumers are having. Because the other competitors, for example, you know, yes, they were sending you the food but they were not doing it in a way in which it was just ready to go, like ready to eat. And, and I find that now, you know, convenience is something that really people go after. So one thing that, you know, I, I really wanted to ask you here is in a, a, I would say, segment that is competitive. You know, I mean, when you guys were launching this and executing this, it was super competitive, right? With all these people, you know, racing rounds and doing all of this. I mean, it seems that now you guys are, are coming out strong uh, and leading the way. But, you know, it's definitely a process. And, and, and how were you guys able and how were you able to really keep everyone focused and not getting too distracted with with what competitors were doing to really, you know, like be where you guys are today? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's a great question. I mean, so what we've always believed is, is you know, the old story of the turtle and the hare. Um, it's a long game. And you're not trying to win at the highest valuation. You're not trying to win next year. You're trying to say, okay, I want to build a great company. So I always say the biggest competition is ourselves, right? We, we've got to compete against ourselves to do a little better every day and got to remain very focused. And we've been very focused on that. I think unique to us and unique to Carter and I is that we started this company because we were solving our own problems. We didn't start this company because we were in business school and we said, okay, we got to start a, We got to come up with an idea um, and then we built this idea and we had a lot of hype around it. So, so, and then we also grew up outside of the coast. So we grew up with, with no money for a long time, uh, which made us be very disciplined on how we spent money. So we were, we were, we were very fanatical on, on gross margins. We were very fanatical on, on not wasting money on knowing how exactly, uh, we were getting returns on our investments. Um, and, 
you know, that wasn't always the trendy thing to do. The trendy thing was to go hire some Uber chef or some, you know, amazing thing and throw parties and do these things. And, and it's, it's frustrating because those are the things that the media picks up. Those are the things that, you know, it, they work really well until they don't work. And then the media kind of turns on you, but we just said, Hey, keep your heads down and just keep going. Cause, cause we know that at the end of the day, we're going to, we're going to continuously making the product better for our customers and fulfilling the needs of our customers. And it was easy for us because we were our target customers. I hate cooking. Um, I needed, you know, my belief was when I started this was I needed an affordable solution. I wanted my own personal chef and nutritionist. I just couldn't afford it, you know? So I needed something that I could eat healthy on for $8.99 a meal, but I couldn't, I couldn't spend hours cooking it. So this was the solution that solved my problem. It was, it was someone else designing a meal for me that was healthy. Uh, they cost me, you know, under $10. Uh, I didn't have to tip or do any of those things. And I could heat it up whenever I wanted it. It was ready to go. And I think that that has just resonated. I think some of the challenges that people have with food is people are busy. People people don't have a ton of discretionary money where, you know, if you're ordering on Uber Eats or DoorDash, it's expensive. Um, and, and people also don't tend to make the most healthy decisions on those channels. Um, so it ends up being unhealthy and expensive. Uh, and then on the, the other side, the meal kit side is, is it's fun. It's fun to do that. And if you're, if you're a person who enjoys cooking, it's fun, but you can do that maybe one or two meals a week. It's, it's hard to find an hour to two hours to cook a meal at the end of the night. Uh, and that's where really freshly comes in is, is, is we don't solve all 21 meals for your week. Um, we solve six, we solve nine, 12. Um, depending on the customer. And, and that's really where we come in is we want to help you get through the week and make better decisions uh, by making it easy, uh, by making you really crave and be like, oh, I can't wait to go home and eat that freshly meal and not feel like, oh, I'm on a diet or something like that. And that's what we've stayed away from. So, um, but we've just been focused on doing what we do. Um, and we, we try to stay away from the, the FOMO and the, you know, let's follow the, the hottest thing. And I think that's, that's generally what I'd say is, is again, that belief in your mission, the belief in what you're doing, um, and disconnecting, it's a long game, right? So it's, it's, if you're, you know, I, I'm a runner. So it's, it's, if your splits aren't great in the first mile of the marathon, that's okay. Right. You, you've got, you got, you got another 25 miles yeah. to go. Right. So, so, so just, it's really focus on that focus on the, that it's a long, it's a long journey. And, and these, these small wins are great, but they're, they don't necessarily indicative of, of, of the long game. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, uh, so Mike, one of the questions that I, that I typically ask the folks that come on the show is if you had, you know, you've, you've had now like about seven years of super hard work, super smart work, and then also, uh, a lot of, um, lessons learned along the way, you know, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with that younger self, with that Mike that, had already, let's say, made the decision of I'm going to go and, and start freshly. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself knowing what you know now and why? It's probably probably the same advice I've been given. Uh, I'd go back and tell myself it's a long game. It's a long game. Uh, make sure you stay patient um, and, and stay focused. Um, don't let the little things uh, stress you out too much. Um, it's a long game. And I think that that's that's something I still have to remind myself because I'm highly competitive and all these different things is, is, is making sure that I just slow down. And then the other thing is enjoy the journey, right? So I think this is, this is, this is what I, I always like to say is that, um, you know, if you're a hiker, you, you, the goal is to get to the top of the mountain, 
right? But that that's that's a moment. That's a flash. And and what you you really want to do is enjoy that hike. Enjoy that. Enjoy the the four hours it took to get to the top of the mountain. Um, and and if you only enjoy the top of the mountain, then that's not that's not a you know you're not getting the most out of that that journey. And I think that's the thing when with 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 startups is it is something you are going to dedicate a huge portion of your life for a substantial amount of time. So enjoy it. Enjoy the people you're around. Enjoy the the process that you're doing. Enjoy the outcomes that you're delivering for your customers. Um, and don't anchor your success purely upon an outcome. Um, and you know, hopefully that that success is is that even if I don't make the top of that mountain, um, even if I don't hit the the highest peak, I hit the lower peak. Even if if I never hit a peak, um, it's still a great journey, and I still got a ton out of it. And I think if you if you do that and you kind of redefine success. Um, it helps you on that journey. Uh, and I think there's an overemphasis on success being just financial success. And, and, you know, there's, there's no amount of money that you will make in life that will ultimately go back and correct an unhappy 10 years, right? Uh, time is your, your greatest resource. So make sure we're enjoying it. I love it. I love it. So Mike, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, best way is to, to, to reach us out on Instagram. Um, I think that's our channel that we're all over, but, um, that's, uh, uh get freshly, um, is our Instagram that we're, we, we put a lot of energy and effort into that. Uh, certainly order the product. Um, you'll love it. Um, and, and have a great time. We'll make sure that we, uh, get a promo code for you to put on, uh, on the website. So you guys have that, but, um, and, <clears throat> And then our support channel, our chats, all those are, are great channels to reach out to us. But uh, try the product. I, I promise you'll enjoy it. Um, and and uh, let us know what you, what you think about it. Amazing. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Hey, Alejandro, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure been uh, chatting with you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.